Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. A techno-utopian biotech firm isn't all it's cracked up to be. Interns are getting sick and dying, and only two women have what it takes to expose the nightmarish conspiracy at the heart of blood culture. This is Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. Today we're going to be playing, and then talking about, Lance Dan's Blood Culture, a multimedia adventure that begins as an audio drama and then expands outward into a website, an alternative reality game, and a hunt for former Prime Minister David Cameron in a video of a 1988 rave. No, I'm serious. Lance Dan is a lecturer at the University of Brighton, and he's been a radio dramatist for a long time. His work is always compelling, entertaining, and weird. I got to talk to Lance a few weeks ago, but first, I want to introduce this series. It's a techno-thriller, fast-paced and seamy. It has heroic women, fearsome Scotsmen, a sinister conspiracy, and so much blood. Not in the gross way, in the science way. Now, settle in for some adventure as we begin our story of blood culture. Blood has been thrown at the walls of our offices. It runs down the glass in pools, thick and red on the concrete below. Do you see that, Luca? Aisha, sit back down. I look out over the atrium, over four floors of workstations and the multitude of desks and screens. Luca, that man looks like blood running down the building. But no one has noticed. Heads are bent. Faces bathed in monitor glare. Probably, yes, and it's probably a test. No one dare look up. Not today, of all days. A test? Of what? Get back to work, will you? Richard could be here any moment. Richard Dreyer, CEO and founder of Meta Corporation, has given us an hour of his life. An hour in which he will watch us, question us, inspire us, and sometimes fire us. Careers and reputations will be made and lost in the next 60 minutes. Stay calm, Luca. He's nowhere near. You need to relax. I look at Luca. Two years in and still an intern. Hey, Luca, are you all right? Yeah. He looks frail. Of course. I just... Drawn. Pulled the red eye, getting these reports in place. To Luca, Richard Dreyer is so much more than a CEO, and working at Meta, so much more than a job. Aisha. Ah, Kim. Of course. We've been monitoring a lot of downtime on your keystroke activity. Dried up, bitter Kim. Don't you dare mess up this team's data. Team leader. When Richard is with us. Line manager. Everything must be perfect. Arch manipulator. Voices echo up from the security gates. Whoa, who's that? A woman. 
She's broken through security. Running for the stairs, tailed by security guards. God, she's fast. I see her now. Leather jacket, heavy boots, blonde dreadlocks. I, I might know her. What? Is she something to do with you? She's not my problem. And she isn't until... There's Richard. And then... She's headed straight for him. She has everything to do with me. Libby! Stop! Alicia! I run, swerving chairs, hurdling desks, leaping stairs. Libby, no! She's nearly on him. There is something in her hand, something metal that glints. She points it at him. And I have her. And then we're falling, tumbling, tangled to the ground. She bites me. She scratches at me. I won't let her go. We roll and clutch and struggle. I catch her wrist and slap her hand to the ground. And a vial falls from her hand, spilling red paint onto the floor. Hands pull us apart. Hold them. Wrestling us in place. Control them. Crushing us down. Wow. This is most discordant. I am sorry, Richard. So sorry. Livy, it's me. Aisha, stop fighting! Aisha has always been a problem to us. You. Quiet. Clear the area immediately. I wish to speak with these people. He crouches in front of Livy. So, you came to throw blood at my house? And who sent you? No one. I came on my own. Self-determined. That's a good start. Sets you out from the herd. Now, what have I done wrong today? Blood. There's blood on your hands. Blood on my hands? There's blood on all of us. That's the way this world works. A cold smile curls across his lips. Don't you look at me like that. Livy spits in his face. You're killing them, Drea! His eyebrows flick up. Your staff, your workers, you're crushing them! Oh, what a shame. I know about the interns. I thought there'd be more to you than this. Three of them dead, Drea! Take her away! You're letting them die! Hands on her. Each taking an ankle or a wrist. Wake up, sheeple! Wake up, you losers! And I sit at his feet as they carry her away. Listen. Listen. No one is held here. You can leave at any time. Life as part of this company, is hard. We push you to be the best you can be. It isn't easy to overcome everything and transform into your greatest self. What we have here at Metacore is unique. Unity, strength, love, bonds that no one outside can understand. He leans forward, cupping my chin in his palm. 
And you, Miss Cowan? Are you with us? Yes. Of course. Are you worthy of our love? It's, it's an honor to work here. Work? Work here? We don't work. This is life. It is play. It is inspiration. It is our manner and our very being. What is it for you? All of those things. Good. There is room for all kinds here for the deviant. Black sheep. But we need trust. Trust and kinship. Can I trust you, Aisha? Absolutely. Are we kindred? Yes. Yes, we are. Remember that, Aisha. Learn to live with us. Because the bonds forged here are strong. He looks at me. Stronger than family. And we are one. Stronger than blood. We are locked together in that shard of time. They're yeah, the bonds of life itself. Hmm? Then suddenly, he's gone. His court trailing him as he sweeps through the offices, passing out his corporate benedictions. Metacorp. We are the company that everyone owns a part of, but no one knows. You came into my work, you threw blood at the walls, you attacked my boss. Someone has to make a stand, Aisha. Metacorp are in your pocket. What did you think you were going to achieve? On your phone, your tablet, your TV, your computer. We have to fight. You could have got me sacked. Metacorp. Our name is on the chip, hidden in the code. So why have you got that company destroys people? It's ridiculous living! No, they are working in 10, 20 hour days, 140 hour weeks, never stopping. We are controlling and shaping your data. We are controlling and shaping your data. Yeah, that is called work! Something you might not know a lot about! Help me stop it, Aisha. Help me tell people about what they're doing. Evie, this is my job! Yeah, but it's not who you are, Aisha! We ensure the pure, clean flow of your information. It's not you, it's not the woman I know. No, knew, Livy. The woman you knew. That was a long time ago. Metacorp. We are everywhere. And yet, nowhere. No, no one can change that much. It's called growing up. What would your mum say? Don't, Livy. Don't do that. Just go away. Get on with your life and, and just leave me alone. Meta, because the future just got better. Meta. Because the future just popped in. Oh my gosh, Aisha, we saw what happened. He knew your name, didn't he? Richard knows who you are. Luca and Shireen, the yin and yang of the Meta Intern Programme. This is the coolest thing that could happen to anyone, ever. Shireen, full of hope and energy and naivety. In two years, I've only ever seen him twice. Luca, exhausted and hollowed out by life at this company. 
knows who you are. You must be up for selection. Selection. The company's fast track for the brightest of the bright. I was never an intern. I was never in the programme. Oh. So you've always worked here? Mm, I, I didn't even go to uni. Well, there was a call-out for HR posts, and I just went for one and got lucky, I suppose. That's insane. Then how does Richard even know you? Oh, let it go, Luca. I'm not a threat. I'm not going anywhere. Luca was sent up to Metabeta, the proving ground of the company. Somehow, he failed, and they sent him back. There's no chance of selection for me. Oh, don't say that. I mean, what happened earlier with that crazy lady? That was a test, wasn't it? Maybe you passed. What? Livy? Yeah. Wasn't she one of Richard's interventions? No, it wasn't. You see, um... I, I, I sort of knew her. Oh. So you are in trouble? Oh, don't look at me like that. Oh, really? I, I'm not unclean. Yeah, Kim is after me, but she always is. Nothing else is going to happen. So that woman, who was she then? Who was she? Uh, just a friend. Well, she used to be a friend. There are friends you've known your whole life. They've always been there their life running parallel to yours as you grow up together. And yet, when you look over at them, when you see what they're doing, what they believe, who they are, you, you think, do I even know you? Our parents used to take us to raves. Livy and I waving glow sticks at each other from our prams as bass thickened the air. <laughs> they took us to the same festivals. Rode the same convoys, taught us together, played with us together, laid us down to sleep together. <laughs> then Mum's illness took over. She died. Dad went to pieces and disappeared into a cannabis haze and I had to run our lives. I had to think about the future while Livy's stone just carried on rolling. She experimented, she experienced, she shouted and battled. We never lost touch. But we live on different planets now. But she fights for the rights of the world while I work for the corporation and look after my father. Livy's one of the good ones, I reckon. Always like that girl. Don't follow the earth, does she? Right, Dad, and I do. No, I'm just saying, you know, there's something true about the way Livy lives. Dad lives in a van parked in a lay-by on the A27. There's a lot of harmony in that girl. I can respect someone like that. A converted ambulance with a smokestack out back. A bed, that is a couch, that is our dining table, and a two-ring burner. Oh, so what about me? I'm cooking your dinner. Are you going to give me respect for that? Yeah, yeah, of course. What is it tonight, then? Corn. Oh, I don't eat corn. Yes, you do. You're a vegan. It's not natural. It's mushrooms. How is that, mushrooms? Oh. That can't be natural. Oh, well, go and eat some bark, then. Oh, don't look at me like that. 
you get more respect out when you put your spliff out. Living meta and everything. Well, uh, well, first off, she'd uh, well, she'd ask if you're hurting anyone. What my job? Oh, day by day, you know, bit by bit. No, not really. Yeah, I suppose you are. Then she'd uh, she'd ask whether you're making the world a better place. Oh, it's just a job, Dad. It's just a way of getting money. But are you using that money to make a difference? Though? I'll make a bloody difference to you. I'll take care of you. Yeah, 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 yeah you do. Yeah. Is, is that enough? Well, it should be. Shut up and eat your corn. Daybreak. 5am. I don't get into the office this early to impress. I get here because I need the space and the time to think and to prepare. Hey, Sherry, I know you're not interested, but please listen. I've found something new. Now, look, there's been no investigations in any of the kids who have died. No one is finding out what is going on. They're not checking. The first was Peter Durham in Ireland. He was buried inside three days. Brendan Lake in Stourbridge, 21 years old, and there is nothing about how he died. Nothing in the press, nothing online. Then you got this girl in Birmingham. She died, no one knows Hello, Aisha. What are you doing here? Oh, my God. Sorry, was I interrupting something? No, nothing. Sorry, Luca, you, you made me jump. I wanted to ask... You look so tired. What did he say to you, Richard, when you were together? So drawn and grey. Of all the thousands of people in the company, why you? It wasn't always like this. Hey, Luca, that's a bit unfair, isn't it? I work as hard as anyone else. Yeah. There's a digital photo frame on his work desk. Sorry, it's just frustrating. There used to be pictures on it of his sister, his mum, his dad. Not knowing how I can ever make my mark. Stop doing this to yourself, Luca. Now, there are only pictures of Richard. You're good. You'll get somewhere. I had a chance, though, didn't I? I was in the programme. I thought I was selected, and I thought they'd take me on, take me with them. And then it didn't turn out that way. There's a, there's a lot else for you to do. Not here. Not in this company, working for someone like Richard. If I prove myself here, I can do anything, go anywhere. The impossible becomes probable. And that's one of Richard's slogans. It's one of my debaters, actually. But it's true. I was there, Aisha, in the programme. And I want to go back. If there was any way, if you could ask Richard... Oh, then Luca, I'm... stop this. But when you came here, you were probably the brightest 20-year-old I've ever met. And now look at you. God, this is just work. It's, it's not who you are. Look, if Richard knows who I am, then that's great. I, I don't know how it happened, and it doesn't worry me, and it shouldn't worry you, all right? All right. I'm sorry, I'll, I'll leave you to your phone call. Uh, wait, Luca. Yeah? Um, what happened to the uh, pictures of your family? What do you mean? Your actual family in that digital photo thing. I didn't think they were appropriate, you know, at work. Oh, Luca, hon. Family is always appropriate, wherever you are. Come on. You've, you've been here all night, haven't you? Well, you know... There's always work to do. It can wait. Go and get some rest, please. He smiles softly and slides away from me, 
fading into the morning light. I can't work like the others, not night after night. Not those long hours without limits. My body won't allow me to. Simple as that. I have the same condition as mum, sickle cell. My red blood cells are shaped like sickles, curved and hard, not the little soft and pliable discs that travel through your body. The haemoglobin in those cells won't carry oxygen properly and without enough oxygen my body gets tired, worn down, listless. Every month I need to refresh my blood, a transfusion of another's life into my body to give me energy for a while. But there is no space for the sick or the weak or the tired at Meta, so I have to keep this quiet, known only to me, Dad and a few friends. Benny's office. The company health station. What can I do for you? Warm, hazy, messy, human. Wipes out, go. Why don't you take the day off? Oh, well, I can't risk it after yesterday. Yeah, well, think yourself lucky. Your mate gobbed in Richard's face. It's a miracle oh. you're still here. Fenny is the meta-medical site officer, which is a grand way of saying that he is the company nurse. And if staff keep on wiping out like this, I'll be heading off out the door. So what? People really are dying. What, Livy's right? Your fellow friend. <laughs> well, she's right in some ways. You lot are working too hard. Mm, yeah. Don't think Richard's killing anyone, though. <laughs> you're too valuable. He hates it when you're sick. But he needs you. You're the flesh and blood that keeps his machine working. That's why he's obsessed with keeping you lot fit. Look at all these computers. They gave you a health tracker, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Sends out on Wi-Fi, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, look, I've got the live feed of your blood pressure, your heart rate, pedometer readings. I've got the body data of everyone in the company. Well, pretty much, you know, other than Richard, of course. Really? What, all the staff? Yep. All of you were signed up to our Meta Health programme. So, yes, everyone. Look, can you do something for me, Venny? Can you call up the details of um, Peter Durham from the Irish office? Oh, one of the dead boys, isn't he? I uh, should be able to. Oh, no, I can't. Mm. Look, his record's blocked. Okay, try um try Brendan Lake from Stalbridge. Nope. Same again, blocked. What? Why would they be blocked? They're private, I suppose. What with them being dead and all. What is that normal? Uh I could try and find out. Yeah, go on. What's in it for me? Fenny. People are getting ill, dying. Remember what you did your training for? Yeah, uh, yeah, mostly for the chicks of the cash. <laughs> It was to help people, right? Make the world a better place. Oh, that. Yeah, go on, that. See what you can dig up, yeah? The day ends and Livy is outside the office, crouched against a wall, arms around her knees, breath clouding the night air. Aisha, don't walk away from me. Livy, you shouldn't be here. Aisha, it's worse than you think. You know, they were all on the intern programme. They were barely out of university. Not now, Livy. Same pattern, all high achievers, working long hours, pushed and... Livy, what do you want me to do? You're on the inside, you can find out what is going on. Don't be stupid. What happens if I'm caught, I lose everything? No, no you don't, you just lose your job. Just my job? 
Oh, so what about Dad, huh? What? How am I going to look after him? Saul's cool. He can look after himself. Oh, you really have no idea, do you? There's nothing cool about my dad. I need that job to feed him, to clothe him. He hasn't got anything. He won't work or sign on. I can't live in a fantasy world like you do. Hey, hey are you listening? Yeah, I should, yeah. Look, just hang on. There's someone over there I'd like to have a little word with. Hey, you! Piss off and stop following me! What are you doing? Yeah, you! There is a dark slash of movement at the end of the street. You think it's okay to follow women around, do you? A figure in the half-light. Don't hide from me! He moves forward, thin, wiry and tense. He waits for us. What do you think you're doing? I'm looking out for you, Missy. Yeah, right, well. Stand there much longer and I'll lock you at me. Good girl. Come on. You hold your friend back. Leave it, Livy. Don't want her coming to no trouble. Stalking me. I'm not your stalker. I'm keeping an eye on you. It's my job. I met a security lover and my job is to make sure you don't cause no more trouble. You've got no right. Well, haven't I? You threw blood at my offices. You attacked the boss. You spat in his face. I think I've every right. I'm going to be right on top of you until you learn your bloody place. Rip your face off! Lizzie, him! She has gone at him. Get away with you! I catch her by the waist. Libby, stop it! Pull her around. And she slaps me hard, and I fall. You disgust me! And then she is on me. Asha, call me. Together we'll stop them. And then she turns. Bitch! And runs. And she's gone. Well, she's quite a firebrand, isn't she? Let me help you up. Aye, but you've got some interesting friends. Oh, she's just stupid. It's impulsive and stupid. Oh, I don't think we can call her stupid. Not that. Come on, I need to go back to the office. Walk and talk with me for a bit. I'm Ewan, by the way. I know you are. One of Richard's favourites, aren't you? What do you mean? Oh, that's why I'm here at the office. You're getting some special treatment. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. No one treats me any differently. Oh, I don't know. According to your line manager, they do. What, Kim? Yeah. She tried to get you fired for what your friend there did. Seems someone on high, on very high, put the stops on that. If that's the case, then I guess I'd better be watching you as well. Why would you watch me? Because you're smart and you're subtle and you're good with people, which makes you a threat. What, me a threat? To Richard? You're kidding. Am I? Am I kidding? Does this look like a face that does kidding? Does it? Now, let me tell you something so you shut your smart mouth and listen. You have any contact with that woman. You call her like I just heard her tell you to... And you'll regret it. Not like you'll get a bad report or crap reference regret. I mean serious. Industrial grade, pure high density regret. You get me? You get me? Oh, you'll never get me, will you, love? Just nod. He smiles at me and gold winks between his lips. I merely nod slowly, cautiously, so that he can see. <laughs> That's a good girl. 
Now piss off, will you? He turns and leaves me, walking up the stairs to the meta building where the doors open, swallow him, and he's gone. I raise my eyes. Two figures stand silhouetted on the second floor of the building, looking through the glass wall. A man and a woman. Kim and Luca just standing, watching. Luca raises a hand as if to wave, but Kim moves hers over it and pushes it down to his side. I had the distinct pleasure of talking to Lance about the research he did for the series, his creative process, being a middle-aged white guy, and whether or not it's really David Cameron in that video. Take a listen. Lance Dan, welcome back to Radio Drama Revival. It is great to have you. Uh, this is our first interview, but you were you were here before with Fred. Fred once had upon a dream. Only seven years ago or something (laughs) it's only seven or eight years ago and nothing much has happened in podcasting or audio drama since no it's just tumbleweeds yeah it's been really quiet the scene hasn't moved on just a dry basin hey and i'm definitely never kicking myself for being in there at the beginning and not exploiting that position no that won't happen no you've You've done great. I, I, I really loved Blood Culture. I've loved your other work. Uh, it's, it's a real pleasure to get to talk to you. Great to talk to you, too. And uh, I mean, like, you are, you're running one of the great bastions of this scene, which we we're just talking about. <laughs> so, you know, fantastic work there. Thank you. So we were talking before the interview started about how I, I live in Silicon Valley and I work for a nonprofit, but I'm surrounded by Googlers. I'm surrounded by Facebook people. Uh, and something that comes up in blood culture that I'm, I'm sure you noticed in your research and your travels is that there is this dangerous conflation of life and work. Like at Google, people will feed you three meals a day if you let them. There are Googlers that have just stopped cooking. They eat nothing but work leftovers. Um, I'm wondering where – so, and this is very much the case at Meta, right? Where does this desire to collapse work and life come from, do you think? I think there's a sense in which um, it, it's, it's the way that tech companies and corporations kind of – it looks like they kind of want to own you and own your time and own your outputs – and basically own all your thoughts and you become defined as a Google person or an Apple person. And part of that process, I mean, I, if, you know, a, a traditionally, you know, a Fordian um, company, you know, a big factory would just clock you in for as long as possible and mm-hmm. own you that way. Whereas these modern companies do it in a much more subtle way, I suppose, because they're trying to own ideas and sort of cognitive processes. And they do it by, you know, this the, the work is play and play is work. You know, you don't want to go home ever. We'll feed you 20 different kinds of cereal in the cereal bar, like like you're, you're saying. And it, it's a different form of oppression. <laughs> it's, it's you know, it's, it's the, the, oh, this is the campus. This is your life. You never want to leave. And that's kind of... Um, one of the things I'd kind of latched onto with um, when I kind of conceived of Meta and when I was thinking about those ideas was that you've got these sort of three pillars, uh, uh, three or four pillars of, of um, huge tech companies that, that stand out, which are, you know, Apple, Google, Amazon, Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And certainly kind of like the reputation around Google was always this sort of workers player thing. But then also with um, a lot of the model with Meta had come from looking at the activities of Amazon and, you know, the treatment of both white and blue collar workers there. So that was a real kind of um, you know, thing. That's something I felt very strongly about was just the, the way that Amazon was, was treating people and just reducing them just to little data sets. Yeah, apparently in the corporate office, uh, it's very common at Amazon to have your first day cry. And I think you're supposed to make your own desk. I think you build your own desk at Amazon. That's like your first task. I I, re- I, mean, I did a lot of research on it. Apparently there's like 11 layers. There's 11 tiers of Amazon. And there's no tier nine. So you go from one to eight as a worker, right the way from probably the person who's delivering stuff to is tier one to eight. And then you can't get you can't jump to the higher tiers you're basically you're capped there and then the higher management what uh, like 10 11 12 t- uh, the further tiers and 13 is jeff bezos who's at the top that's so classist what oh the no hell? They got the complete break and it was uh, and and just yeah the, the the things about people crying the things about people reporting on each other you you'd ring you know you'd send someone a text at 3am or an email and if they didn't get back to you you could then use an internal reporting system. Um, and also rank and yank, the kind of process of taking the bottom 10% of any workforce and firing them. And of course, everyone's scrabbling like rats over the top of each other to survive. Um, so a lot, yeah, those kind of processes came in there. Also, I wrote the piece. Uh, I mean, my background is has been a lot in the arts and as a you know working with insane uh, theatre companies and at the BBC who are pretty huge organization but actually i kind of started working in academia and worked around and got aware of office politics uh over the last uh, few years and that began to sort of feed in and watching the behavior of people sort of in an anthropological way the way that they would just stamp <laughs> people down around them and maneuver and kind of you know the sociopathic and psychopathic behavior of people in working positions as they tread on each other so yeah, the first, I mean, the first few episodes are definitely a workplace, you know, it, it's about contemporary work. And also, Jesus, the, t- the treatment of interns is massive. And that millennial generation. A, a profound moment for me when I realised this was, was going on, and this idea, particularly around Apple as cult, was um, the day I bought an iPad 2. And I was actually, I was on a project up in London. I had to get it out as soon as possible. I was doing an, a, an early AR project um, that didn't quite happen, classically. And... Um, I had to get an iPad 2 and I went in and I, I went to buy it and this 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 woman came up to me and I was like, oh, I'm an iPad 2. And she looked at me and just went, awesome. And I thought, I've just bought some Wellington boots, some gum boots down at the road at uh, Clark's and, and they didn't say they were awesome. And I just thought, oh, you just, you know, bless you, but you're just working in a shop and you, you think <laughs> it's so fucking cool. And, and, and I don't want to put you down for that, but it's really just retail. And and I think also there's this English thing of like we expect our retail service workers and our waiters to be mildly depressed, <laughs> and that's all right. And that's kind of like because I've lived in America, and I notice that people who are waiting on me seem to be enjoying themselves. Or in England, we expect them to be pretty miserable <laughs> with it, and we're like Jesus. on their side. You're like, yeah, it's a terrible job. It's a terrible job. But yeah, and shop workers, you know, you expect them to be just crushingly bored <laughs> so to have happy uh, shot workers who seem to be mildly brainwashed to me was quite striking i i have always felt when when approaching an apple product for the first time i've noticed other other companies have sort of started to follow suit is that the moment of unboxing has this kind of 
I don't know, religious holy dread <laughs> about it. Everything seems laid out like like religious icons in the box. Yes. I mean, that's that's the and, – and it does everything you want it to do in this perfect way and it becomes this sort of godlike um, element of your life. You know, it's just a little miracle worker. Of course, I've ditched Apple now. So uh, – <laughs> and that's why I'm surrounded by – half-working PCs in my studio. but um, That sounded yeah. like a very Richard Dreyer, like, yes, <laughs> to me. Oh, Rich, Richard. He's so sinister. Poor Richard. Yes, actual fact, he, um, uh, Jack Claff was an extraordinary actor who uh, who played Richard, the CEO. Um, and much of, uh, he's, he's in Star Wars, the original Star Wars. Jack is. Oh, interesting. He was, uh, yeah, Red 13 or 9. He's one of the, the X-Wing fighters he flies in. Right. Oh, I saw that in his credit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, he's, he's brilliant because you'd think, okay, because he's a professor or something or other, and he's like knows about quantum physics. He's an extremely smart man. And you'd think that someone like that would be completely kind of standoffish about having been in Star Wars. Oh, bloody no. Like, as soon as he met my son, who, <laughs> who's eight, he's like, hello, Monty. Have you seen a film called Star Wars? And Monty's like, no. And he's like, oh. Oh, I was in it. This normally works with eighty-year-olds, and it's like everyone is like, you know, it's, it's it's really charming that he's not cool about being in Star Wars. It's pretty much the second oh, thing he says to awesome. you. Awesome. So, and 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 I like that. Also, someone who's you know a polymath at the same time. I I remember hearing from him in an after show that he had interacted with. He had worked for a bunch of different executives. What what did he draw from those experiences, like being around high powered businessmen, to develop that character to portray uh, Richard? I think, and we talked about it before, is the sense of otherness, and there's a sense around power that means that people don't have to read other people's emotional responses. And it's almost like um, it's almost like a form of you know that the, the way that people with autism can't read emotional responses. It's almost like this happens with powerful people because if you think if you're in a position where everyone is either under you or you can buy them, you don't need to bother about reading their emotions, and it means that they end up sort of being cut away. And, and there's, there's, there's actually um, a psychological – I read the Atlantic magazine, which is a fantastic American magazine, and there was an article in there which was actually looking at where psychologists and clinical psychologists had looked at this and actually sort of regarded it as a um, condition almost, that the patterns of the brain change. If you have a lifetime of not having to read other people's emotional responses, then you know it does change you psychologically. So I think that was part of it was just that sense of kind of otherness and being removed. And and I kind of also looked at um, things like the behaviour of Murdoch uh, in particular, when he, he had to do this, there was this big inquiry into the press, and it was really interesting the way he spoke uh, when he went in front of a, like a panel or a court, and he spoke incredibly... Was this the, the phone hacking thing? The, yeah, the, the Rupert, Mur- the Rupert Murdoch you're talking about? And it's the first time he'd really spoken and been challenged in public. And he spoke very slowly, like someone who was used to everyone waiting for them to kind of catch up. And, and, and um, you know, some of Jack's performances were kind of like took that thing of like, yeah, you wait for me. I'm going to take, be in control of this room. I, as a speaker and as a, you know, I do lectric and public speaking and things, talk far too fast, which I think is a sign of my like uh, being like, yeah, come, come. Got, got to keep them entertained. Got to keep people focused. Yeah, I, f- I feel as though Dreyer's 
almost his catchphrase is like, stop talking. That's his, his mm. thing is that he just, he immediately will take the floor from someone if he can. Mm. Stop talking. And, uh, you, you know, also, also a kind of ability to hypnotize and draw people in, uh, you know, just by, by focusing on them. Because actually when you're with people who are extremely charismatic and they give you that attention, it is like being in front of a laser beam. <laughs> And you're kind of like, oh, God, they're talking to me. They're talking to me. Don't, you know, they're doing that thing. And I, I actually find, um, you know, I mean, I've met kind of very kind of like, I don't know, high profile people or whatever. And it's felt that too. But also, yeah, when people turn a particular act on you as, as well, you think, oh, you're doing that thing on me, but I can't resist what you're doing. And that's what he sort of does to um, um, Aisha in particular is one of the protagonists. He sort of draws her in and she can feel herself drawing in, but can't help it. It's like I, I find that with um, casting actors. They do this thing where they come in and they tell you how much they love your script. And you think you're doing the actor thing. You've walked in and you've told me my script's wonderful so that I want to cast you. But you know what? It still feels uh-huh. good hearing it, even though you know. I know it's like you're doing the thing, aren't you? But I still feel <laughs> nice. <laughs> and that's, that's probably a sign they're, they're, they're good actors. It's like, um, unless they're good scripts. So Dreyer espouses this kind of great man theory of history, right? That there are some people who are uniquely situated to affect change in the world through the sheer force of their personality. And I didn't really used to believe that, right? I, I think that history is a um, a product of multiple events and contexts and populations rather than the individual actions of individual people. Um, but I do have to admit that the last year <laughs> or so of politics has changed my my thinking and my calculus on that a little and I'm curious where where you fall on the great man theory, like reading of history. How does that apply to Dreyer? Is he just a singularly magnetic, charismatic, dangerous man? Well, this, okay, I, I wrote this when the idea of uh, Donald Trump was being president was still being laughed at by John Oliver on HBO and uh, things. So it wasn't going to happen. Um, and actually, that I did the great man and and, and the singular, the prime individual. It comes from Ayn Rand, who's actually, uh, you know, the writer Ayn Rand, who's very popular with all these Google and, um, you know, people. All, all your next-door neighbours have probably got um, copies of Rand books lying oh, around. God help me. Um, which is kind of quite scary. And then, you know, before that, it's the kind of Nietzschean idea, isn't it? Um, so that idea of the, the great individual, people who tell themselves that, I just, you know, I'm a huge believer in ideas of survivor bias, that successful people are successful due to a combination of circumstance and luck. And that, you know, there's a saying, uh, successful people are either smart enough to realize they've been lucky or lucky enough to think they've been smart. So in other words, (laughs) if you're smart and you're successful, you think, okay, I'm aware of all these tangential things that led to my success. And if you're not, you think it's God-given and it's, you, you know, genetic and you are very important and and that that, that sense of you know people rise to the top and into a powerful situations through a combination of circumstance and when they were born and where they were born and being born at the right time um i think is really key and you know that if you look at the great the the hugely successful tech entrepreneurs you know um gates and jobs and people like that they were born in a very tight cluster of dates actually uh, isn't it um, Malcolm Gladwell wrote about this in Outliers and I was quite struck by that that, they, that you had to be born in the west coast of America at a particular time 
whenever those people were, were born, probably the early 50s, um, in order to be in the right age when the tech boom happened in order to succeed. And otherwise, your mm-hmm. chance had, had, had gone. And it just shows you how much circumstance can affect people. So to think that you're the great person, the, the one person who will you know, overcome all, you're only there because of luck and circumstance. And you should appreciate it and be aware of it um, and be, know that we don't live in a meritocracy. Yeah. That's that's a big conversation that's happening in the valley right now is this this slow deconstruction and it's taking a long time to break down this slow deconstruction of the idea of meritocracy. Um and it's all starting to come to a head with this um this googler that just got fired mm. for his misogynistic. I mean you you saw that bouncing around I'm sure. Yeah, 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 very much so. Uh and so you're seeing a lot of critique from both within and without the industry talking about like have you have you critiqued the pipeline? Have you thought about like how people get here and why minorities don't stay in these businesses, why they don't stay in the industry. And it's not because they're not good enough. It's because you've made it an inhospitable place. I'm really conscious as a producer and as someone who puts together projects of having to make myself, you know, look beyond the obvious people and to try and be as diverse as possible. Because, you know, in working in audio it's an industry and particularly kind of, you know, in areas of kind of radio, it's an area that kind of falls back to middle-aged white men. Um, and as one myself, I'm aware of that, you know, if you're not careful and therefore you have to make sure you, you get different kinds of people in and you enrich any group that you're working with. Um, and I always say, you know, that, that you know, and, and there was a point where we were working on blog culture where I had to employ a lot of people in a hurry. There, there'd been a problem. I had to quickly fill some spaces and I just went to old friends and I just went to old contacts, you know, the first people uh, who kind of said yes. And it ended up with, like, I got, like, three or four people basically my age and, you know, my background. And I thought, okay, this isn't great. And then the next people I bring in are better be different. Otherwise, if we hit a problem, it's going to be, okay, how should we solve this problem? Should I go to my opinion or another version of my opinion or someone like me, but they've got a bit more hair? Or, you know, it's like you don't get that, that richness of views and, and input to the projects unless you actually sure. put in a you know, a bit of effort and just call out different people, especially in those industries which are dominated by a particular type of person. So, I, I, yeah, I mean, I kind of read that and I just thought you've got no idea what it's like to have to kind of fight your way up and through circumstance. And also, you're not, you know, if you just employ the same people, your company's going to suffer. Right. I mean, this is how you get products like electric eyes and facial recognition software that doesn't recognize black faces or black skin. Yeah. Because it never occurs to any of those people to like check to test it on a black coworker because they don't have any. So, I mean, I, and I think that, um, you know, it, it is difficult when you're putting together projects individually and you're, you're pulling people to, to together, you're kind of having to start from scratch each time. And each time you have to make sure you stir the pot. It's important to work with old contacts because they, they can fulfill certain points and you know people can do certain jobs but then at each time it's important to swap the personnel around a bit otherwise you know you get bored and and the projects get stale so you know looking forward and looking onto future projects um yeah we're swapping it out a bit um just to keep ourselves on our toes and to keep things alive so the podcast is not the end of blood culture Right. There right. are other things that you have built into the narrative. There's a there's an online game. You can sign up to join um Meta beta, you can have like a text adventure. How else can you explore the story of blood culture? How did your studies work into that? So blood culture is an extended world, right? You've got it's that 
Uh, my relationship to media has always been this sort of sense of if I've really engaged with something and really enjoyed it, not wanting it to end, which is why part of that and that my work was I always try to push things off the screen and push things around the edge of the audio and to have other content that feeds in actively, but um, and and also kind of gives rewards for people who are more and more into it. Because the other kind of thing I think about and work on a lot is, is different types of audience. And for some people, you want to have a fulfilling experience for people who are just listening and then, you know, catching it on the radio or, or sometimes or as a podcast. And also then give more and more goodies away for those people who want to be drawn in closer, but not leave those core audience uh, who just listen casually uh, to one side. So with blood culture, there's the kind of fake recruitment process around meta the evil corporation. And the fun thing about that is that if you go to metabeta.co.uk, which is where the company's uh, recruitment website is, then you can um, put in your text number. You you can put in your phone number and get a te- you, you sort of like, oh, if you want to apply, do you do this kind of like really bad is- isometric um, test? And they say, oh, you know, you've qualified. Give us your phone number. We'll get in touch. And then you start getting automated texts from a member of the company. And uh, people have been end up having phone convert, sort of text conversations with this worker from Meta who's called uh, Justine. And she chats with you and you kind of say, oh, you know, why do you want the job? And what do you want from this job? And she comes back and then eventually she admits to being unhappy. And this is all happening in SMS uh, text. And eventually, you know, she's like, oh, God, you know, this place is awful. Actually, can you do something for me? Can, can, can you help me um, find some information? And you end up sort of going on this little kind of helping her by distracting people around the offices while she breaks into places. And this is all run live, and about 100 people have done it so, so far. I mean, have buried into the experience to do it. And it's all using um, – actually, I'm going to have to give it away. It'll ruin it. Uh, it's all using a chatbot we built for the experience. So you're just chatting away to this thing. And it was tremendous fun working on that. Uh, it, it was just mad looking, specifically the people's first responses. I had no idea how people would come back and start talking to this girl. And because I, I knew the SMS text was more personal, that's why I wanted that. I didn't want email or, or a, like a box popping up on your computer because you think, oh, that's a program. But the only people who ever text me anymore are like friends and family. So getting those kind of automated texts, which, you know, very rarely do I get them from companies, um, I thought, no, that's kind of like someone's really chatting. And people would just talk to her like um, it was a real person. Oh, I'm busy at the moment. I'm down, down the pub. Can you call me later? Blah, blah, blah. Oh, do you want to go out for a drink later? <laughs> Start chatting up the thought. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, of course. And when you build these things, you have to predict what people might be saying to them. And I'm like, oh, I haven't predicted like you might be saying I'm down the pub a bit drunk. So initially she was going wrong a lot and getting into loops, <laughs> going, you know, shall I break into the room or not? And they'd be going, I'm drunk in the pub. Shall I break into the room or not? And we had to, like, train her to uh, not fall into loops when people were being random and weird. And by the end, it's, she seemed to be running quite smoothly because everyone was going through. And the final stage is um, you ring up a character's phone number. Um, and uh, it was actually um, a, a handful of people got through to the character's phone number which was either a pre-recorded voicemail of the character or me when I hadn't set it up going, what? <laughs> Who are you ringing? Oh, no, it's Livy's <laughs> phone. Oh, Christ. Uh, yes. Uh, a couple of people I tried to carry on being in character, but it's great. I actually had like fans, just well, fans, listeners, whatever, you know, ringing me up in person and then chatting with them and them going, I have no idea what's, what's happened here. I've just ended up calling you. Sorry. Um, so, yes, it, that was a kind of lovely thing that kind of, 
extended the experience and took it outside and made it kind of more uh, real and exciting. And, and you know, I think that, that just a little bit to make the world feel that uh, around the story, just feel a little bit more kind of detail to to it and, and make it more memorable for people. We did some little videos to go with the series and they didn't really work so well. They didn't click. Vinny's science track? Yeah, didn't like it. Didn't work. Uh, so that's kind of got pushed to one side. But yeah, you can kind of do that with projects as you build them. Some things are clicking and working and this whole interactive thing, it was, it was a hoot um, and it was kind of new to do. I think my favorite bit of transmedia that you did uh, in this with this project was the fact that that Sunrise Party 1988 Part 4 was a real video. Uh, and I looked it up. And is that can – I, can I say who it is? <laughs> That's – Like is that, is that actually David Cameron? God, we've got to contextualize this for listeners, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> so um, that goes back because actually a number of people who, who – people are like, oh, you're getting all Flickerman-y on us, Lance. I, the, I did this story called The Flickerman some years ago and it was all – and I, and I want to do some more work like this where I just go and find artifacts online like films and videos and things. Um, and, and especially ephemera, like home shots, things. And then I start writing around them and finding scenes and frames and, uh, you know, someone's random photograph. And I write about what's happening in the photograph or the person in the background of a p- random photograph. I love all that kind of stuff. And, and you're sort of finding, you know, direct artifacts online and then pointing the audience to them. So with this particular uh, scene, I'd known about this. There, there's rumoured that our previous prime minister had gone to a rave in 1989 and been just captured for three seconds at a 6 a.m. in the morning rave in the middle of the first summer of love, which you know what he would have been doing then. He was the right age, he was hanging out with the right people, and he was probably off his face. This is David Cameron. Um, so there was something about that video that, that actually I found quite evocative. It was a very particular time and things. So I located two of the other characters from the story in the video, I found other random people in the, this this film, this actual footage that's up on YouTube. I said, okay, then that's that person and that's that person. Um, and then, you know, the characters are like, oh, we found this video of this this person, blah, 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 you know, look it up online. And and the audience can do this, the same thing too and find these little shards. And I love that. I love those little moments of coincidence, you know, and, and you, you cultivate coincidence when you work like that. You actually make those little things happen that give you a shiver down your spine and go, oh, you know, this, that's really crossed over kind of and it feels, it feels like it really works. Yeah. No, that was very cool and I appreciated it a great deal. It's that thing where the, the boundaries between the real and the imagined um, get porous and, and, and it doesn't take much. You just need a couple of little hits and you're like, oh, this kind of feels like it's real to, to me. And it, there's, there's or moments where you have synchronicity between – you know, it's like when you're walking along the road and you're listening to music and there seems to be a synchronicity between what's happening around you and the music or something like that. And those little moments where two kind of tracks work to, to, together, are, I found kind of very exciting. So that's sort of the, the thing I try and articulate with some of my work, sort of cultivating coincidence. That's really cool. Um, so you made, you made this with funding from the Wellcome Trust, which for those outside the UK is a biomedical charity and they support all sorts of different work. Um, they seem to do a lot of like media oversight and media funding. Well, I mean, yeah, the Wellcome Trust kind of back, they, they are big. There's a lot of big pharma companies come together, uh, back research, and then they, then they fund public engagement projects and people 
you know, bringing out their ideas and their research to the general public. Um, and that was one of the criteria of the project that we'd sort of be talking yeah. about blood and issues around blood. Um, you know, it's weird. I, I, I quite like having, um, uh, there's nothing more frightening than a blank piece of paper. But, you know, if, if you have some criteria to work around, someone's saying, oh, write us biomedical piece. And, you know, it suddenly gets a lot easier. So, you know, and, and, and their funding, they have very, very deep pockets uh it's such that you know the the money they gave us towards blood culture you know it's just just a drop in the ocean to them and i think it's one of the ways that we can get full costed audio drama funded is you know it's like they did with um the message and life after you know you go to a corporation you know general electric in their case and um get sponsored or get the funding up front as opposed to trying to relying on advertising dollar because there's no way we could have funded um blood culture through advertising alone it, it was it wasn't a cheap project and it's the audiences you have to gain to in order to fund things fully through advertising that that way you uh, would just have to be huge so i i got really really fascinated the next follow-up project uh, i'm kind of we're talking about a follow-up as opposed to a season two even though it'll feature some of the same characters um is about gene splicing i'll give that away because it's going to be quite early on that it's and jesus it's so interesting the work they're doing with gene splicing and I'm meeting all these scientists in London who kind of like, you know, on the cutting edge of it. And it's so exciting to talk to these people and then, you know, to be able to take their ideas. And it's, it's fun. I was just having to look for the right scientists to work with. Fortunately, in the end, I found a woman called Christina Lasso, who was just brilliant. She was so much fun and so energetic. This was on blood culture um, and kind of got this real sense of like the playfulness you need in order to express a story about science. And she was kind of, she worked with um, stem cells, looking at ways of reducing the amount of time that uh, treatment of leukemia would knock you out and leave you without an immune system. So this is a very serious person, but she was great because we'd be sort of talking about ideas. Oh, you know, what happened if we did this and that to the person? She'd go, oh, you know, I must go and ask one of my colleagues. And she'd go and ask another scientist, uh, some professor, (laughs) and say, look, if we did this and that to someone and then we did that, what would happen to them? And they'd go, don't do that, Christina. They'd die. They'd die. They'd go, no, no, good, good, good. (laughs) And things like this. So she's willing to ask the sort of dangerous questions. Oh, God, what's going on with Christina? She wants to kill people. Um, and that's kind of like, you know, the, the, the sort of person you're wanting to look for is just someone with a uh, kind of a sense of fun and, and energy. Because, you know, these are, are, are interesting and important themes. I mean, this uh, issues around gene splicing are going to change the world we live in. Um, and, I, you know, I kind of want to be able to present those ideas in exciting and dynamic ways without also scaring the bejeepers out of people. <laughs> sure. I mean, they're doing work with, um, if people Google CRISPR now, and I've been reading about it now, it just blows your mind. Oh, sure. So I think the next two projects I'm going to do are going to be about CRISPR and gene splicing. Do you think you'll be able to get Welcome Trust funding for that as well? Um, I hope so. I mean, uh, Knock on wood. touch wood. I mean, uh, yeah, it is very difficult. And, and also, like, one of the problems about going for full-funded uh, audio drama is that you know my timelines are huge this is why i'm not going to do a season two partly is i'm not going to be able to do anything and f- you know if we get the funding it might be late 2018 before it comes out which will be an 18 month gap between the two seasons i don't expect anyone to have remembered what happened in season one <laughs> you know it'll be like you know who is this person again and it's also i've got to have to start from scratch so there's a kind of a sense with um, these projects that, yeah, you, you can't, it's difficult to do that kind of running thing and 
butt one season onto the back of another and build an audience that at that pace if you're going for funding and full costing. But you know that's all right. I, I kind of like the idea of also um, making a fresh start and 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 the, the audience doesn't you know they don't encounter and go oh god do I have to listen to like five hours of stuff before I get to this new stuff and things. So um, um, we, we're kind of using some of the same characters, um, but telling different stories. We, we can't leave this conversation without talking for a while about Livy and Aisha. Because mm-hmm. um, I think that's something that blood culture does very well. And this is obviously one white dude talking to another white dude. Um, I think that something that blood culture does very well is to portray the unique threat that men and their bodies pose to women, but also at the same time setting up Livy and Aisha as these indomitable, unbowed badasses. <laughs> um, and so I'm, I'm curious how you walk the line between acknowledging the reality of patriarchal violence, but also having Aisha and Livy rebut it. It... The two characters, uh, for Aisha, the protagonist, it came down to a moment where one of the characters, um, Ewan, I think is in episode two, threatens her and it becomes almost sexual. And that sexual violence is there and he's growling at her and he's like over her and it's very uncomfortable moment. And it's the only point where a man began to push at a woman sexually like like that. And 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 when I work with actors, I'm a huge believer in it. You cast the right people and then you let them do their job and you basically just shape and sculpt from a uh, background. You don't, hopefully, <laughs> I probably find out I'm not, I'm quite standoffish. I let them change lines and deliver lines and find their own way through it. So when that scene went on, at the end of it, it wasn't actually written in the scene that she, at the very end, pushes right back and says, get out of my flat, something like that, you dick. <laughs> and she said it in one take, like just uh, off the cuff, like chucking the scene back at her and throwing the energy back at her. And I was like, right, all further takes, I, you have to have that because that is what this piece is about. It's about someone pushing at you and that threat being real and you at that moment just going, you know, screw you and pushing back and having that energy and that anger to throw it back at, at, at them and saying no. I won't put up with this. And I think from that point of view, you know, letting the the actress and letting Chantner have that kind of position and that freedom to, you know, work with the script and work with the energy of the character was very important. And when I kind of met her, you know, she was a strong person. I wanted someone who was strong and focused and, you know, had that kind of power in her voice. So that was kind of through that character, was someone who just, just had that sense of determination within them. Uh, Livy, her wild uh, brand sidekick, is actually partly based on a woman I know who um, just lives a life, this extraordinary life of just chaos and excitement and adventures and just nonsense. And every story seems to involve things like, if I see it, it's like, oh, I was breaking into a disused nuclear submarine in a in an inflatable lilo in Scotland and it started to deflate under me. So then this bloke and I, like, we had to swim there and then we got to the, to, to the submarine and it was locked and I was on it and I was cold. And this is an actual story. And it's like, every time I see her, it's some other insane nonsense that she's done. <laughs> and I'm just like, and it's like most of the time I'm like, and you know, smashing cars and just uncontrolled spirit and you just i just i don't i've never seen anyone like you written you know she's like carly the 
destructive goddess, you know, just, but so much positive energy too. Um, and I kind of wanted to write a, a female character, also like, you know, just a proper kick-ass female character who at no level takes any account for men, <laughs> you know, and is not there for our entertainment. And I watched that awful Girl with the Dragon Tattoo film when I was writing it. It's got this kind of geeky, punky girl. And I thought, oh, this is a bit like Livy um in it and then by the end they've, they've cut her hair and they've given her blonde hair and she's shagged daniel craig and i'm thought no no that's not what those girls do like daniel craig should be on his knees begging her to take him back she'd be like screw you mm-hmm. so it's sort of right um you know these writing these kind of powerful women that i knew in my life and also just just writing um you know just strong female characters who were just completely uncompromising and you know there was femininity in there but it wasn't it's they're in the middle of a thriller it doesn't matter who you are they have problems to solve they go and solve their problems in their own unique ways and that's what matters and their gender is not the defining characteristic of those people and i just think that that's kind of like a really refreshing way to write characters and you know the again the actress who played livy just had a ball you could just tell. <laughs> I can imagine. That character is so much fun. Oh, God, it was just... And basically, it was like, yeah, she gets to bite people, spit at people, um, <laughs> do insane things constantly. Um, she does shag someone, but leaves him, you know, a wreck afterwards. You know, and she said, uh, you know, I've never had so much fun playing a character because all the female characters I played are, are normally victims or weak. And it's true, actually. When I looked at a lot of the actresses' um, showreels, it really struck me. Here's, here's two little things. Looking at, first of all, the actresses' showreels really struck me was like, um, how many times there were bloody rape victims or like victims of this or victims of that. And it's like, you know, in the scenes they've cut together. And I'm like, oh, for God's sakes, is this how we portray women? And here's a really telling thing. When we cut the trailer, we cut a video trailer uh, for Blood Culture trailer, go to YouTube, you can see it. It's very kinetic, very exciting. Um, and the guy who cut it brought some stuff back and I said, right. Uh, you know, it's one minute long. And I say, like, okay, I want no shots of women looking vulnerable. Um, you know, there's a woman running down an alleyway and she looks over her shoulder. Didn't want that. So we went back to it and I said, like, look, look. And there was a shot of a woman being hit by a man. I said, I don't want that. It's, it's like, okay, look up women hitting men. And he was having to use, um, going to video libraries, you know, the online stock footage libraries to get these shots. And I tried it myself. And every time I typed in, woman hitting man into these libraries, these vast sort of online libraries. He'll come back with men hitting women, men terrorising women. I was like, okay, woman punching man. It's like, no, woman spitting at man. No, the other way around, man spitting at woman. It's like, Jesus, it, you know, it, it really struck me. It's like, yeah, the depictions of violence of men and women is just normative in our society. But turning it around is so unusual. Um, and I just, you know, I thought it was important to make a piece that, that just threw that away and just played with different kind of energies. Awesome. Both of them are wonderful characters. I enjoyed spending those hours with them. I have to admit, I was like, the initially I was afraid that Livy was in over her head. Like I thought like, oh no, you know, those thugs are going to, you know, belt the hell out of Livy. <laughs> and, then, and then I gradually came to trust the character and realized you could throw her into like a pit of snakes and then cut away and cut back and she'd have tied them all into a giant knot. Or like just bitten their heads off individually. Right, like, yeah, poisoned them with her own venomous teeth. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is, I mean, she'll get herself into scrapes a lot of the time. And it's great fun writing a character like that because you just, 
you know, what's the most extreme thing that someone could do? What's the most harebrained response that someone like that could, could have? And you just, and also because she's kind of superwoman, you know. Yeah, I mean, whatever it is, she's already done it twice. Yeah, right. Yeah, and there's this lovely little moments. There's a, in in episode five. There's a, um, a moment where a lift crashes, and she happens to know how to trigger an Otis brake, which is a, a particularly uh, old form of manual lift brake. And then she sort of screeches it to a halt, and everyone kind of like smashes the ground, and everyone's groaning, and you can hear her, uh, the actress, laughing in the middle of it, like, "Well, that was fun, wasn't it?" And this is this sense of like you know she kind of threw in those little moments herself because she already knows how to do that because she's an experienced urban explorer. Yeah, an right? urban explorer. Which which this woman uh, who is based on was also an urban explorer. She used to take me urban exploring, and loads of little kind of things like that, which had always kind of like, oh no, you, I know how to break into all the keypad locks on buildings and things. You go on, oh, no, 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 here's how you do it. How do you know all these random things? Yeah, it's just. I mean, she'll be coming back. <laughs> awesome. Well, Lance, thank you so much for this conversation. This was absolutely wonderful. Oh, David, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure. Sorry it's been um, eight years. Well, let's not let eight years go by till the next one. Uh, I fully expect to have you on soon. Yeah, at the moment, I'm writing uh, alongside a, a guy called Martin Spinelli. Um, what looks like one of the first big critical analysis of um, podcasting. So we're, we've interviewed everyone from across the podcast space i mean we've got like you know the guys from serial from radio lab um all the big audio drama podcasts um you know and, and we're sort of talking to podcasters and then kind of analyzing what they're up to and trying to catch the moment of the scene i suppose before it changes again and again and again and the book should be out next year and there's a chapter about audio drama then so um i'm kind of trying to invite myself back on the show Yep. Done. <laughs> Success. You've done it. Hurrah. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you so much, David. Cheers, Lance. Thank you so much, Lance. That was a privilege and a delight. If you'd like to find out more about Blood Culture, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow them at Blood Cultural on Twitter, or visit the website at blood-culture.com to explore all the fun Easter eggs. I like Alan Gilchrist's Easter egg. When you click on his name in the credits, it brings up a dorky granola bar advertisement he was in in the 90s. But there's so much more to discover. To learn more about Lance Dan, visit his website at lancedan.co.uk. That's Dan with two N's. Lance, I can't wait for your book to come out. And you're welcome back on Radio Drama Revival anytime. Thank you for listening to the show. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend. And now... It's time for some credits. Our theme music is Danger Digidoo by DJ Stranger Danger, whose music can be found on SoundCloud. Our line producer, Matthew Boudreau, is going to crack this thing wide open. Once, while urbexing in New York, he found a lockbox full of bones, tiger bones, and he knows as well as you that this thing goes straight to the top. And he's got just the boots, the crowbar, and the right hook to get himself there. Our interview's producer, Eli McElveen, is your eye in the sky. He's jacked in. He's on the grid. He is the grid. Just give him a minute, and he's in. All right, you're clear. Go, go, go before the camera's back on. Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreau are our researchers, tirelessly working day and night, hurling themselves at whatever project I hand them. They are the best, after all, and that's what I want on my team. The best. Fred Greenhalge, our executive producer, is the one behind it all. He's the one you want, not me. Why, I'm just an innocent host. He's the wicked, wicked mastermind behind all of this. Get him. 
I'm David Reinstrom, slipping out the back door. Thank you, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.